0: so on and probably that will be on my gravestone whatever i might think about it um, as i got more interested in in education i began to think about what's my educational philosophy and we all have educational philosophies whether we think about that implicitly or explicitly and um, i eventually wrote a book called the disciplined mind which I, and i made a fairly simple straightforward argument in that book that the purpose of education should be to um, learn the major ways in which people have thought about the world, the major disciplines, the sciences, the arts, the humanities, and so on. And I still believe that that should be the purpose of education. And then some years later, I wrote another book called Truth, Beauty, and Goodness Reframed, where I sharpened the argument, and I said... uh, in education, we should learn what's true and what's not, and the sciences have their ways of establishing truths, but they're historical truths and social scientific truths. But we also should think and learn about what it is to be a good person, a good citizen. I have lots of ideas about that, which I'm still working on. And um, When I talked about beauty, I put forth a rather Uh, eccentric definition of beauty. I said beauty is a property of experiences. And a conversation can be beautiful, Um, a walk can be beautiful, obviously a work of art can be beautiful. These are all experiences which are interesting and memorable and we want to repeat them. Um, And so that that, that book was called Truth, Beauty, and Goodness Reframed. But even though that was the second book project on the topic, it still haunts me. And so one of the things I'm thinking about as we speak is what can we do to make sure that people in the world actually have an education where they are informed and nimble about truth, beauty, and goodness. And a new way I have of framing it is between the literacies and the job listings. If you talk to people who are mildly knowledgeable about school, about education. They'll say, well, we have to have kids who are literate. They have to be able to read, write, calculate, and now many would say they have to be able to code, and they have to be able to get a job. And indeed, uh, some journals talk about nothing except employment. I'm interested in all the stuff in between, as we say technically, all the stuff in um, And uh, it seems to me that What we do in school, what we should do in school, after kids can read and write and calculate and before they're on the job market, is to help them understand the different forms of knowledge, what each of them can and can't achieve, why ethics and morality are not the same as biology and physics, um, why what somebody is moved by may not be moved what you're moved by, but it's worth figuring out uh, what experiences they value and which and which experiences they don't. And part of life is what you value changes. Uh, uh, when I was a kid, I became interested in classical music, and I remember in high school we would put on different records of the Tchaikovsky First Piano Concerto to see who could play it the most quickly, and that was my aesthetic at the time. But I'm sort of embarrassed if I were my aesthetic now decades later. I'm now preparing some lectures. Uh, I'm going to probably teach a course on it, and ultimately we will probably write a book on the big picture of education, putting aside literacies and job listings, and thinking about the kind of human beings which we want to have on our, on our planet. This relates to my biggest project now, which is the biggest project I've ever undertaken um, in my 70s. It's called LAS 21, Liberal Arts and Sciences in the 21st Century. Um, the kind of school education which you get at, in the United States if you go to a four-year non-vocational school is really an American invention. It has some um, reverberations in England, It probably got in Britain first, but it's only in America that we have 3,000 colleges and universities where you can go and study a range of topics, a range of... Um, disciplines, uh, write a thesis, uh, have a major, have other areas of concentration, without it certifying you to be a doctor or a lawyer or an architect or so on. I think this is a very valuable form of education. It's actually admired all over the world. If you go to East Asia or East Europe, you'll find that either people want to set up their own liberal arts schools, their own Amherst, their own Yales, or they want to have a a campus that's connected: Yale, Singapore, NYU, Abu Dhabi, uh, Shanghai, many different places, and so on. Yet in this country, uh, four-year non-vocational education is in big trouble. It's very, very expensive—fifty, sixty thousand dollars a pop is the sticker price. It actually costs about a hundred thousand dollars, but the schools end up subsidizing it. And there's a lot of pathology on the campuses: a lot of, a lot of drinking. Uh, a lot of drugs, a lot of uh, sexual rapacity. Um, there's lots of research which indicates that at most schools kids don't learn very much. Their, uh, their performances in writing, their ability to analyze and solve problems is not much better after a few years than when they started. So this is a, this is a big problem. Howard Gardner has nothing new to say about the value of liberal arts. Uh, it's been said eloquently for at least 150 years. But what we don't know is how the different constituents um, on campuses think about why they're in the kind of school they're at. So what I'm doing with a wonderful research team, ultimately studying 10 campuses all around the country, and we are interviewing all the stakeholders, incoming students, graduating students, parents, faculty, senior administrators, trustees, alums, and ultimately recruiters, though recruiters, people who are Um, going to be hiring people out of the school will not be done on a school-by-school basis. And this is a national study, both in terms that we're going to go from the East Coast to the West Coast, and we're looking at all kinds of schools, Uh, schools that are very selective, schools that are not selective at all, community colleges, um, small schools, large universities. And in each of these places, we're interviewing um, about 200, 225 people, so we'll have... Over two thousand interviews, we've done about seven hundred now. I've done about one hundred and fifty myself. and we talk to people. We don't use the word liberal arts till the very end, but you know what's the purpose of college? Why should somebody go there? What do you hope will you get out of it? Should it be transformative? Should you take risks? If you were the Czar of education, how would you change education? Um, if you were given a free week on campus, what would you do? What do you think students would do? Um, a book, a, a question which I hated, but it's actually a very good question is um, if you could give every graduating senior one book, what book would it be? And it turns out to be a very revealing question, not because of what book people ask, mention, but rather because um, they uh, reveal how they think about a question like that. So it's kind of a liberal arts probe, if you will. So, um, what question am I asking myself? One is, are the conceptions I have about education um, at all being borne out by what we find out from the, the people in these campuses. Um, I'm asking what their mental models are. That's a bit of jargon. How do the students think about higher education? How do their parents think, etc. And another bit of social science jargon, I'm interested in alignment and misalignment. When everybody says the same thing, uh, it's not very interesting to me. But for example, if all the heads of schools talk about the importance of training good citizens, but parents and kids never mention that, that's a misalignment. Or if um, parents talk a lot about getting jobs, but faculty say it's not our business to get people jobs, that's a misalignment. And then an important part of of the project is to identify schools, programs, projects which bridge those misalignments which bring what the faculty want in closer alignment with what the trustees want, what the recruiters want in closer alignment with uh, what the students think they want, and so on. So this is at least a five-year project. Uh, I said to someone the other day, we're not, we can't see the beginning of the end, but we've seen the end of the beginning. And it's absolutely fascinating. The one thing I can't do now is talk about the results, because that would uh, invalidate the project, because then people would say, oh, The Gardner group, the uh, LAS21 group, thinks this, let's prove them right or let's prove them wrong. So uh, fans will have to wait a few years till we begin to uh, uh, write about it. Um, In the olden days, I would have put things in peer-reviewed journals and then written a book. But I'm very aware that nowadays that's not the way messages travel. And so, and this is another thing I'd like to talk about, I'm much more involved in the world of social media, of blogs, of uh, um, different kinds of information sources. And I want to get the story out, and I will be looking in, let's say, the year 2018, 2017, 2018, at where people are paying attention, and who's paying attention. One of the groups I want to reach are state legislators. Because they're going to decide whether to support public education. And public education is going to be very different if it isn't supported than if we have free community college, which was actually recommended by Truman, Harry Truman's commission in 1947. Um, but uh, since past performance is to some extent a prediction of future performance, we've got terrific doctoral students working on the project. I'm sure they will be writing articles for peer review. In fact, a couple of them already are on different aspects of the project. And I'd be surprised if we don't have a book or two. But if I find that having a dynamic website with uh, uh, iterations on 500 campuses is the way to reach people, that's what I'll do. No, um, I pay pay attention to which things that I write get tweeted, but it's not by me. Uh, Sometimes it's by my kids and sometimes it's by people who who work with me. But uh, time is finite, and uh, uh, I don't think the best use of my time is to come up with 140 characters uh, six times a day, but if somebody else wants to tweet about that, that's absolutely fine with me. We're at a, a pivotal point now, because starting in the 60s, the federal government had an increasingly large role in higher education and in education in general. Um, this was the Johnson era, the elementary and secondary school acts, the different titles and so on. But um, speaking as we are at the very end of 2015, I think the, the federal role is going to radically be diminished in the years to come because neither the left nor the right particularly wants it, which doesn't mean the federal role was wrong. <laughs> um, but I think politically there's going to be much less support for um, uh, any kind of attempt to have a national federal uh, policy. So, As you say, John, uh, the big players are going to be entities with lots of money, which are individuals who are very wealthy and individuals with foundations. Um, until now, of course, the Gates Foundation has been the biggest. But about a month ago, Mark Zuckerberg announced he was going to give 99% of uh, some kind of a, uh, ph- philanthropy money um, to uh, um, causes involved in education. And the very first thing he said was education, which was more personal. So in an uncharacteristically Gardner moment, I sat down in an hour, I wrote an open letter to Mr. Zuckerberg and put it in the Washington Post. Whether he ever will see it, I don't know. But since I've been focusing on individual differences in education for 40 years, uh, I have a few thoughts about that. But you're right, um, it is going to be much more of a wild west, what sorts of things get um, tried in education, the, ne- the notion that we're going to be all reading out of the same hymnal or singing out of the same uh, hymnal is, is just not 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 going to be the case. And it may it may not be bad. Um, I mean, you know, Americans American uh, federal system um, you know has been very uh, effective in, in, in certain areas, but not in, I think not in policies of of higher education. So let me tell you about another project. Um, which uh, um, I've actually been working on for 20 years, but it's taken an interesting turn. Um, with uh, Mike Mahai, who's part of the uh, Reality Edge world, and Bill Damon, who could be, um, for 20 years uh, we've been studying um, what we call the Good Work Project, um, but because that's metamorphized in various ways, we, we now call it the Good Project, and there's a website called thegoodproject.org, and a good project talks about good work, good play, good citizenship, good collaboration, good life, a whole bunch of goods. Um, originally, we were interested in how people could be both creative and humane at the same time because uh, they have rather different connotations. And the project was called the Humane Creativity Project. In fact, nobody knew what humane creativity was, so we changed it to the Good Work Project, and it got funded quite generously over a ten-year period. And then my colleagues moved on, but I stuck with it. And after about twenty years, um, I said, you know, we're just talking to the same people, mostly in education, and uh, we need to be we need to be, we need to have a broader canvas. And so um, we created a the website. Um, the good project. and um I began to create blogs um, and been doing this for about a year. and the blogs aren't all on all from me. they're from other people as well. But then I decided it needed to have more energy. and um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a very successful lawyer, and I said, "You know I want to start a website called the Professional Ethicist. and I had a, a a uh, Actually a blog, though I think it will be a website eventually, and I had a particular reason set of reasons for calling it the professional ethicist. Obviously, I'm interested in the ethics of the professions, but I don't think there really are people who are professional ethicists, but um, there are people who do the ethics of law, the ethics of medicine, the, ex- ec- the ethics of architecture, and so on. So I thought I would create a a, a blog and a website called the Professional Ethicist. And at the time, the New York Times had three different ethicists writing every week, and I thought it was just ridiculous, Um, and so I was, in a sense, making fun of of their enterprise. Now they have a single ethicist, Anthony Appiah, and he's quite good, but what he does is he talks about moral questions in general, and I'm really interested in the ethics of the profession. So my friend said, Howard, you know, it's fine to blog, to have 600, 700 words, but you need to write a more significant piece where you kind of lay out your… Your views in depth, and I thought he was right. So I wrote a, 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 an essay of about five thousand words um, called um, "Do the Professions Have a Future?" And to myself, I called it the Long, the long Telegram because um, George Kennan, the uh, the, the diplomat uh, in 1946-47, wrote a long telegram in which he laid out his position about our relationship with the Soviet Union, the, the policy of containment. And while I have no pretensions that I'm George Kennan, I wanted to write something to kind of move the conversation along. And in the beginning of December, uh, the month that we're talking in, 2015, I posted my essay and uh, the reaction has been more than I could have possibly hoped for. Many, many people who care about these issues have written and written very intelligently, um, either to me personally, and sometimes I've said, well, can I post this on the, uh, on the blog, and sometimes I've written directly in the blog, and um, I think I've got a conversation going. Uh, this is now a case of be careful what you wish for, because uh, being very much involved in the liberal arts project, um, uh, the question is how much bandwidth do I have to be focusing on um, on professional ethics. I was going to write an omnibus response to these different critics of mine, which include people who I'd never thought would hear about it. In the essay um, I talk about a book um, called The Future of the Professions by a father and son group in Britain, uh, Richard Susskind and his son Daniel, and I'm rather critical of the book. Um, uh, Last week I got an email from them saying, we've read what you've written, we'd like to talk with you, and so we're actually getting together early in 2016. And uh, I said, your book's very important. And the reason it's very important is because it's gotten this conversation moving. So anyway, to finish the sentence, I would hope that the blog would eventually have some energy of its own, so other people will contribute, people will respond to them. And like all these things, at a certain point it'll lose its energy, and then I'll move on to maybe the blog on liberal arts and sciences in the 21st century. So here I am, well into the eighth decade of my life, um, not interested very much in multiple intelligences anymore, but very much interested in the bigger picture of education between literacies and job listings, taking the good project, which Damon and, and I and I worked on for many years, and trying to get a discussion going on what it means to be a, a good professional, and um, trying to understand higher education in America today. Because I'm well-known in education, I'm lucky enough to get invited to um, meetings, uh, often in New York, of people who are the leaders of American education, and I was at a meeting there a couple months ago and everybody went around the table and the person said, I'm the editor of this, I'm the president of this. And I said, well, on the one hand, I have the least right to be here because I've just become interested in higher education. I've been interested for years in in K-12. I said, on the other hand, I'm the man who knows too much because I've read over 600 interviews on six campuses where people are really letting their hearts and guts out about what they think about higher education. And I think when we get our results out, a lot of eyes are going to be opened much wider. I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I was the son of... uh, Refugees from Germany arrived in America on Kristallnacht. So we're lucky that they made it. Um, I was a typical uh, Jewish boy who hated the sight of blood. So I was going to be a lawyer. Um, but I really became became alive intellectually when I went to Harvard College in the early 60s. And there, this was like a kid. I was like a kid in a candy store. I took courses on every particular topic that I was interested in. I did pre-law and pre-med. Um, I uh, you know, was, uh, was really across the board. And then um, I met two people who had big influence in my life Eric Erickson, the psychoanalyst, and Jerome Bruner, the cognitive psychologist. And I decided to do doctoral work in psychology, even though I'd never taken a psychology course. I mean, my interactions with them were not in psychology courses. And yeah, I probably could have become a, uh, a card carrying uh, psychologist. What I took an unusual career path. First of all, when I was just beginning graduate school, um, I met a philosopher named Nelson Goodman, and he was starting something which he called Project Zero, which was a research project at the Ed School at Harvard. I was in the Arts and Sciences faculty, trying to figure out what's an effective way to do arts education. And I found Goodman very appealing as a mind. He was actually Noam Chomsky's teacher, and teacher of many eminent philosophers. And when he retired from heading Project Zero in 71, David Perkins and I became the heads of Project Zero. And that entity now exists. It's 48 years old. In two years, we'll celebrate our 50th anniversary. For 28 years, I was the director with Perkins. As a, when I finished graduate school, I didn't take a job in a psych department, I took um, a set of postdocs. Um, and then, For 15 years, I basically lived really on my wits. I didn't have a faculty position. I got grants through Harvard and grants for the Veterans Administration in Boston, where I was studying aphasia and other kinds of cortical disorders. And um, I discovered that I was a perfectly decent psychologist. I have probably over 100 peer-reviewed articles. Um, But there were many psychologists who were as good at doing experiments as I was. My talent, such as it is, was really in synthesizing, in writing books. I'm one of the very few psychologists who's more comfortable writing a book than I am writing an article, and that uh, an that school is really the right place for me because uh, people care that you do something interesting, uh, they don't care how many peer-reviewed articles you have in a psychology journal. And um, In 1981, I got a MacArthur f- Fellowship. Uh, that was the first year, and I was the only psychologist to get one. And when I was interviewed by the Psychology Journal, I said, I'm sure I'm not on anybody's list as a prototypical psychologist, but I hope I'm on people's list as an interesting and good psychologist. And I still think about things as a psychologist, but I think of myself more generally, and I've written about this, John, in one of your books, as a qualitative, interpretive social scientist. I'm as much a sociologist or an anthropologist as I am a psychologist, And while I love experiments, and I'm always coming up with ideas for experiments, and my wife is a dyed-in-the-wool experimental psychologist, I don't do that. I talk to people, I interview them, I try to understand what's on their mind, I try to write about it in a compelling way. And now I want to try to change some part of the world. I'm not grandiose, but I wouldn't be um, setting up these websites and uh, um, raising uh, consciousness about professional ethics and about other kinds of goods and I wouldn't be working in the colleges and universities if I didn't want to make a difference and Bill Damon who I referred to a couple of times said, said it very well, he said if I could cure cancer I would he said I can't cure cancer he said I, the most important thing I think I can do is to work on issues of how to have people have a sense of purpose and yoke it to important issues And yeah, I think the people who um, go to Edge and the Reality Club, uh, read what you what's written there, uh, look at the videos, are interested in ideas. That's what energizes us. That's what liberal arts is about. But I think most of us also want to make some kind of a difference. We don't have to be grandiose, but we'd like to... Leave the world a bit better than it was. And certainly, that's as I get older, and I think as many other people get older, we think a lot about the, the legacy, not just in citations, but maybe in, in people who we've influenced in a good way. In 1994 and 95, Bill Damon, Mike Schickson, and I went to the Center for Advanced Study in Stanford, and that's where we came up with the ideas for the, the good work or the project. Um, And shortly after that, they each left where they were. Damon moved from Brown to Stanford, and Chicksen High moved from Chicago to Claremont. And and I said, you know, they got these job offers, um, and they're going to get reinvigorated. Maybe I should move too. Um, But then, um, while I once flirted with one other school, I never really thought about it seriously because, in fact, I live in my mind. And for me, what's important is I come up with new ideas and new questions and uh, new projects. And I think I wouldn't be that different if I was in Chicago or in Brown or at Claremont. Um, However, I will say in this new project, we're going to be working in community colleges, we're going to be working in large publics. Um, We're already working in DePaul, a school I did not know how to spell, a very large Catholic school in Chicago. And that is certainly eye-opening for me because I've been at Harvard for 55 years and it's very hard to avoid being a bit brainwashed by what happens in in Cambridge. Um, But uh, I did work for 20 years in uh, the Veterans Hospital and that certainly exposed me to medicine and to people who I never would have met before. In the 1980s, I did a lot of research in China, uh, wrote a book about it. Uh, um, I've spent 30 years visiting a school schools in Reggio Emilia in Northern Italy, which I think are the most interesting s- schools for young kids in the world. So I do occasionally get out of my... Uh, uh, I visited China a lot in the 1980s and then got very upset by men and didn't go for a decade, but then I went a couple times in the last decade. And I also went for the first time to India and did quite a, a tour, visited seven cities there. Um, China and India are, are enormous, and uh, you know the century is going to be much more defined by what happens in those places than what happens in the United States. I think part of the uh, languishing um, emotions which we're seeing now in the United States is people who thought we were the only country in the world that was worth taking seriously are realizing that not only is it a much larger planet, but uh, their own demography is no longer going to be the majority in in this country. Um, When I'm interested in, in higher education, my mind is really focused much more on Asia than it is the United States, because it may well be, and here I'm going to become very political, that our obsession with jobs and money is going to end up ablating a lot of the higher education here that I respect. You know, Schools will go out of business, and there'll be just a few schools left where you can have a liberal arts education, but that won't be true in China, it won't be true in India, it won't be true in uh, Africa, and it's certainly not going to be true in Latin America. So. Um, I'm always interested in the fact that whenever I go to another country, the Minister of Education wants to see me and they ask me to speak to groups of leaders and I've spoken in Congresses and parliaments. I've never been invited in America by any political figure in education to do anything because um, uh, education here is so much political and it isn't about the quality of the ideas. I don't think that most of my books are bestsellers in other countries. but all of the education books immediately get translated into a dozen languages. Um, and, frankly, more money comes from that than comes from the United States. Actually, I may have told you this, Jerry Bruner said to me 20 or 25 years ago, Professor Jerome Bruner, Howard, the only reason we're getting published in the United States is so it can be bought in other countries and people will actually read it, and that's a bit of a flip comment. But Yeah, I think what's actually going on is is, is something quite different. I don't think that, that it's politically correct to be interested in truth, beauty, and goodness. I think many people, and... The interest in Sherry Turkle's work epitomizes fear that young people today are so involved in their devices, and so involved in comparing themselves with one another, and so afraid of ever having a moment where they're bored, that they're missing out on the stuff that's really the most exciting about living, the kind of stuff that your, your, your life is dedicated to giving attention to. And so, we may not have the right words for it. Uh, we may not have the right platform, but so, we want to shake people and say, you know, there's a world out there, and you need to be curious about it, not just count, and not just code, and not just rank things in terms of return and investment. I think there's a, there's, there's a fear that young people in this usual America is in the forefront of this. Are and Here's something that should drive you nuts. I was talking to a wonderful Harvard freshman, wonderful kid, about uh, four years ago. And I was trying to interest him in something. He said, you know, Dr. Gardner, I'm not interested in questions for which there are no answers. And I said, that's the only reason for going to college. That doesn't mean you can't make progress, but if you're only going to take a course where they're going to tell you the answers, you should go to some other place. Um, So yeah, I think there's a real fear. Now, maybe old people have always had that fear, and maybe it's not well placed, but no, I think we're trying to say, you know, every moment you have is precious. And, uh, you know, the more time you spend on social media, the more depressed you get. That's the one thing we know for sure. And one of the reasons we have so much narcissism and um, imposter syndrome in young people is because they're always looking on every side to, to, to see you know, whether somebody has had a better day on Facebook or a better tweet than they. So, no, I think, this, I think there's a very real reason for this. Um, you know, and Peter Singer, I mean, his, the, the answer is Larissa McFarker's book, um, which I think is a wonderful book um, about people who devote their lives to good deeds, and they're saying, "Well, what's the cost? What's the cost to them?" And are they really doing the right thing? So Singer's got the discussion going, but now, not even he does what he recommends. But as you know better than anybody else, you know, taking a strong stand on something is what gets people to pay attention. The Susskind say, "Profession's a disappearing and Gardner Says, "Hey, wait a 2nd uh, uh, do don't, don't 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 say that so quickly." Um, about ten years ago. I was talking to Jonathan Fanton, who was then president of the MacArthur Foundation, and he said, you know, we've decided to spend a lot of money trying to understand how kids are being affected by the new digital media. And um, he said we want to see whether they think differently, you know, whether they feel differently, whether they interact differently with other people. And I said, Well, what about their ethical sense? What about their moral sense? He said, gee, we've never thought about that. So, Conversation sometimes leads to a research project. And for about 10 years, we did what we call the Good Play Project, which was try to understand the, the world of, of young people that, that, is, that is increasingly digital. And um, I, my colleague um, Carrie James wrote a wonderful book called Disconnected, called Disconnected about um, the ways in which um, when young kids think they're connected they really are disconnected from so many issues that are very important. My colleague Katie Davis and I wrote a book called The App Generation, which got quite widely reviewed, um, in which we claimed that not only do kids only have an interest in something if there's, if there's an app, but that their life is what we call a super app. First you have to go to the right school, then you have to have the right internship, then you have to get the right job, and so on right through life. And uh, we were quite critical of that. So for about 10 years, John, I was a kind of a voyeur of the digital world. But now, because of the blogs I've created um, and because of uh, the new projects I'm involved in, I'm becoming much more of a digital activist and learning about that. If you'd ask me to predict whether this um, essay on the, the professions have a future would immediately get dozens of people write to me very intelligently, agreeing and disagreeing. I would never have thought that was possible. And so, that, so understanding the positive aspects of the digital world as well as the... The, the negative ones uh, is certainly something that, that is new for me. Also, what's great is um, I have uh, two kids who are in education, one is very technological, one is not particularly, and I learn a lot from them and how they, how they, how they see things. Um, I continue to um, you know, be excited by uh, you know, young people who join faculty um, or whose works I, uh, I read. One of the, one of the questions one asks oneself is, when you get a magazine, or when it's something on the radio, what do you listen to that uh, you uh, haven't listened to before? And um, I was invited to New York in New York to a meeting on data science. and I went to it in part because I didn't know what data science was. And um, the meeting was actually much more interesting than I thought. Um, I'm hardly an expert on it, but one of the questions they raised is, you know, we always thought in high school you should study algebra, but maybe you should study statistics. And we always said the next thing after algebra should be calculus, but maybe it should be data science. So I actually had an idea which I gave to a, uh, a psychologist named Branton Shearer, uh, who is in Ohio. He's very interested in the brain basis of multiple intelligences, which I was interested in 30 years ago, but you know. The difference between what we know about the brain in 1980 and what we know in 35 years is, is enormous. I said to him, Well, why don't you um, create um, some, um, look, work with some word clouds and take a look at scientific articles about the brain and see which ones of them mention music, which ones of them mention spatial perception, which ones of them mention social intelligence and see whether they map differently on different parts of the brain, because that's something we couldn't even have conceived of 35 years ago. And he's done that, and it's actually provided some interesting kind of support for MI theory, and I'm encouraging him to, to write it up. Um, but you know, the the questions we can ask now with big data are, uh, you know, they're, in many ways, they're unbelievable. But in 2013, a couple years ago, I was asked, what's the best idea of 2013? And I said, the best idea of 2013 is big data, but it was also the worst idea. And the reason I say it was the worst idea is big data are useless unless you know what questions you want to look at, and at the end of the day, when you get the data, how to make sense of them. And any set of Data has an infinite amount of things you can say about it. You need to, have, you need to be guided by an intelligence, um, both to come up with the question and to know how to make sense of the answer. And I think those of us interested in truth, beauty, and goodness think those are great tools and you can't simply do it by looking at, at a ranking. You no, know, I, I think that, uh, and this is hardly original with me, you know, the three great um, media technology changes were the invention of writing, the invention of printing. And the advent of the digital computer, uh, and the changes of the earlier ones took hundreds of years to be manifest. But uh, I guess Moore's law is at work here. The changes in human beings are happening very very quickly. Changes that are taking place now are ones that could not have even been envisaged um, except by science science fiction writers. And uh, I. I going to use a trivial example, but I think it's it's very powerful. When I was working on the app generation with Katie Davis, the book, I realized, and she realized, that most kids nowadays growing up in the developed society have never gotten lost. Because if they don't have a machine, some kind of a device, their parents do, and they can find them. And, you know, getting lost for all of human history was part of life, and nobody ever got lost permanently. <laughs> you got found. But that that, that simple thing is it was, very profound. Um, if there were a cyber attack, it would make no difference to me, because I spent the first 50 or 60 years of my life, uh, I just all I ever used computers for was to do data analysis. But uh, people who grew, people so-called digital natives, who were born in the last 10 or 20 years, would be completely um, out at sea if there was some kind of a cyber attack and all of the devices were were crippled. Um, I read the same materials that, that 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 you do. I I think that um, the notion that human beings are going to be replaced within the next century I think is 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 is, is not a sophistic is not a sophisticated notion, but changes are going to continue at a very large um, rate. And to me, the big question is really an ethical question, namely, at which point do we as a human community stop making the ethical decisions and turn it over to some kind of an algorithm? Uh, and then, of course, and I'm going to write about this in, the, in, in my professional ethics blog, who gets to, de- who gets to devise the algorithm? Um, and I don't know enough about this to write about it yet, but I'm encouraging other people to do it. The people who are in charge of servers and the people who come up with the you know the programs that we all use are tremendously powerful and in a way they may have to be the new professionals because we can't count on them to be disinterested in the best sense of the word if they're really um, tweaking things in one way or the other as Jaron Lanier and uh, Larry Lessig have pointed out then you know we could end up being in an inferno without even knowing that we got there. Well you know I have a, my, my friend Marcelo Suarez-Orozco at, at UCLA somebody who you would find interesting um, you know, he used to make fun of Sam Huntington in The Clash of Civilizations, and I'm going to write him an email and say, you know, I think it's happening. And you have the Silicon Valley mentality, but it certainly isn't the mentality of other civilizations, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Confucianism, um, or indeed, uh, you know, I mean, Jews will kill other Jews and Christians will kill other Christians. Uh, that hasn't uh, suddenly, I mean, the the uh, the strife among people who don't look or think the way we do and us is, is it's a, I mean, if there were a bulletin of atomic sciences ticking about clashes of civilizations, it would be ticking very loudly at the present time. And Silicon Valley is in a totally different conversation. It's not in that conversation at all. And, you know, when people talk about... You know, um, Blasting uh, uh, ISIS into the Stone Age and having luminescent stones afterwards—the uh, uh, other ones who are loony—I I think the right way to the right way to handle issues of microaggressions and uh, you know uh, sp- censored speech and so on is um, if you say something that offends somebody, you apologize if they, if you understand why it is that they're offended. And if they continue to be offended, uh, then it's really it's really their fault. But the notion that we have to watch every word that we say and we have to think about how what we say could be distorted into being an insult, I think, is is unreal, unreasonable. On the other hand, having spoken to many students now and having read a great deal, um, there are lots of things we say carelessly which do hurt people, and we are we should be aware of that. Um, I think that. Uh, um, you know, if, if I say something to somebody, and the person says, I'm stunned, I should take that seriously. Why are you stunned? And I'm sorry, um, or I didn't mean that at all, and let's, let's, let's try it Try it again. So you keep the conversation going. But you know, if, uh, if there actually are places which try to censor speech, uh, I have no sympathy for that whatsoever. Yeah, I'm, I teach at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, but I've been c- carrying out a one-man battle unsuccessful, nobody else agrees with me, that we should change it to the Harvard Graduate School of Lifelong Learning. Because education in America means K to 12. But we now know that kids are learning in utero. We now know that the first three or four years of life can spawn huge differences by the time kids go to any kind of a public school. And the notion that you could get a high school or a college degree and then um, float from then on is totally ridiculous. Learning takes place throughout life. Um, I'm hoping that uh, some of my best work is still ahead of me, and if I'm deluding myself, I'm happy to be deluded. And so I think we need to forget about education as occurring for certain ages in certain places, and think about it as happening from moment of birth till senility. And here's where I would take issue with Silicon Valley. It needs to involve other people. It can't just be done completely online.